American stories, and all month long we're telling adoption stories because they matter and because it's National Adoption Month. And we love telling stories about love, and there is no better way to love a child than to adopt a child. And there's no better act of love, uh, an act of selflessness, actually, than doing such a thing. And that's why we focus on this all month long. Again, National Adoption Month. And today, the story is brought to us by the great people at the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, a group that sponsors specialized recruiters whose entire mission is to find forever families for kids in foster care that many deem, quote, unadoptable, unquote. And that's just such an awful word, unadoptable. It almost shouldn't be in the dictionary. And they brought us our next guest, Dee Marks, the adoptive mother of two special needs children. And Dee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited. And Dee, before we dig into uh, the, the, the things you've done and the beautiful things you've done for these children, talk about your own childhood for a minute. Uh, my childhood was not so great. Um, I My mom married and divorced multiple times, so we had kind of like several stepfathers in the picture, um, and I never bonded with any of them. And so um, chaos would be the word that I used. Uh, my mom also unfortunately suffered from bipolar, um, which added to the mix of that chaos that we grew up in. And um, so I was very fortunate to uh, grow up with a, a good sense of self in spite of that and recognizing that other people, unfortunately, are going through that same situation and don't have as much confidence and don't have the ability to make the choice to leave that situation. And thankfully, I somehow had an inner strength and I was able to do that and move forward, you know, go to college, find a job, and be very independent and successful in a way, not financially, but in a way that I'm emotionally healthy. And that had to be hard in some ways, leaving siblings behind, didn't it, Dee? In some ways, yes. And there's actually, um, I have one sibling that I actually still have no contact with. And then my other siblings, I'm I'm very close to. Um, In fact, when I adopted my daughter, Marina, is kind of when some of those bonds started to heal. Um, One of the things I don't think we've discussed is Marina was actually biologically a niece through a half-sister. And... um, so when I adopted her, that was the family that she knew. And so it became imperative for me to let go of some of the hurt and the pain that I felt because that was that was what was needed for my daughter to feel that everybody loved her. And, um, and so I'm thankful for that opportunity because we were able to heal a lot of bridges um, strictly through the relationship that I had built with my own daughter. And you wrote, and we got in our notes at least, that your mom felt so bad about herself that she found love wherever she could. And how's that, I, I, how's that impacted you in your, your life, uh, that experience watching your mom? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think my mom just had low self-esteem and low confidence, and so um, she never felt good about herself, and so she was seeking that outside of her, um, you know, by the various men that she was involved with. For myself, I'm super cautious. <laughs> um, I have dated. I've been engaged once. Um, came close to an engagement twice, but I'm super cautious. Uh, and to this day, I'm still single. 
been dating a guy for two years now, um, and that's a great relationship. But obviously, I want to make sure that I'm involved with somebody for the right reasons, that it's because they add to my life, they aren't my life. There's a big difference. Um, And so it takes a pretty unique man (laughs) to kind of fit the boundaries that I've put in. So absolutely, it does have an impact. Well, and, and but despite all that you experienced as a child, and it would have been completely understandable if you'd thought to yourself, adopt, I, I can't adopt, I don't know what a normal home is like, what would I know about raising children? I think something in you, uh, well, felt differently. Talk about that voice in your head that even thought this was a possibility in your life, something so beautiful. I, I think that comes back to that inner strength that I mentioned earlier, that Um, There was just something in me that understood that this was not okay, and this was not the way I wanted to live, and so I made a choice to live differently. But I also recognized that other kids don't always have that strength, and they don't have those options, the options that I did. I have little guardian angels, as I call them, that really supported me throughout the way, um, that made a difference in keeping me forward moving. And some of these kids don't have that. Um, so I always loved kids that, that was just something I was in high school, voted more, so most likely to get married and have the Brady Bunch. <laughs> so, so the kid theme was always a part of my life. I, I just have always been able to connect with them and, um, be supportive of them and give them unconditional love. And so, but it was always going to be that literally I was going to get married and have children. And we kind of laugh about it because I was 29. And I had said to my to my mom at the time that when I turned 30, I was going through in vitro fertilization because I was having a child even though I wasn't married. And my mom, in her faith, thought that that was wrong and said, oh, no, no, no. Well, sure enough, I adopted my daughter. at I got her when, she was tw- when I was 29 and a half. And the first comment back was mom said, see, God had a different plan, you know? <laughs> so, um, and so he did have a different plan, and, and, um, and I'm thankful for that because not only did it rescue me in a way because I was ready to be a parent, but it also rescued my daughter, so it was a win-win. Um, it took her, took her out of an environment that wasn't safe for her physically or mentally and put her in a home where she could truly grow. Yeah. Um, and with someone who was really deeply in, 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 and longing to provide that home. And when we come back, we're going to continue to talk to Dee Marks, adoptive mother of two special needs children, including one she found through one of the Dave Thomas Foundation's Wendy's Wonderful Recruiters. It's National Adoption Month, and we are spending a lot of time, as many nights as we can, telling these wonderful adoption stories. Hopefully, if you're listening, you'll imitate You'll do it yourself. You got an empty room in your house? Fill it, for goodness sake. Fill it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Dee Marks. It's National Adoption Month. 
And D, where we left off, you were you were called by your mom or challenged by your mom, and and ultimately uh, you didn't have the in vitro a, a baby, a child, not a baby actually, a child came into your life. Tell us the story about Marina. Well, as I indicated, Marina was biologically a niece through a half sister, and. Um, through extended family, kind of heard that there was some abuse going on. Um, there was drug and alcohol use by the by the parents and things like that, um, which were very concerning to me. So we looked into it and found out that that was the case. And so um, I went to her home state because she didn't live in my state and um, went to court to get custody. Uh, it was supposed to be a temporary situation just to give time for the parents to do parenting classes, drug and alcohol rehab, and things like that. The goal initially was not for her to become my daughter, but for her to have a safe haven while her parents got the help that they needed. And um, unfortunately, a year went by. Neither parent moved forward on anything that they were supposed to do. And so at that point, my Marina started to experience some setbacks emotionally because her fear was that she was going to go back to them. And she was able to express that in therapy. And the therapist and I met, she said, I I think you need to make this a more permanent situation in order to let her know that she's going to stay with you for an extended period of time. And so we went back and we went to court and got permanent custody, custody of her. And um, about a year later, she started to ask to be adopted. It was a unique situation because I had to remember that there's family involved here. This wasn't, you know, a child necessarily coming out of a foster care system who had no family. And so I said to her two things. I said, first of all, I want to wait until you're at least 12 years old because I I want you to understand it changes your identity. You're no longer my niece. You'll be my daughter. You're no longer um, uh, certain roles within our family dynamics, those are all going to change. So I want you to be cognitively aware of what those are. But second of all, I anticipated that the birth parents would fight me on that component, and I needed her to be at an age where a judge would listen to her side. I didn't want to take a chance of rocking a boat that might potentially tip over. And so she understood that. We processed that with her therapist. And when she turned 12, she's like, I still want to be adopted. And so I said, okay. And so we went right to court. Thankfully, neither parent did fight it. We met with the birth mom and talked to her about it. And my daughter's the one who actually said, this is what I want. She's the one when I'm sick. She's the one who's here. When I'm crying, she's the one who's here. She does everything that a mom does. And I want her to be my mom. And so I was very proud of her for being able to handle that. And then the birth father just basically chose to ignore that it ever happened. Um, he refused to show up at court and um, and everything, so the judge was very careful about how things were worded so that the birth father could never come back and disrupt the adoption. But a lot of it stemmed from my daughter, in her own emotional confidence, realizing that she how she felt differently here versus what she felt like when she was back in that previous home environment and recognizing that that was good for her and that she felt safe and she felt loved and that she wanted that on a permanent basis. Um, kudos, by the only- way, kudos to your stepsister, though, because what she did uh, and how she listened to her daughter, 
I think it had to be a very, very hard thing for her to do. It was. My mom was there um, because we didn't know how, you know, my half-sister was going to respond. Um, she had had tendencies to be violent in the past. She had had tendencies, um, you know, to cause problems. So it was a little terrifying to go into that meeting. And my mom was kind of there to kind of be a buffer <clears throat> because that's her daughter, too. And um, and it, we all, she said, my half-sister said, when we sat down, she, and Marina said what she said, she said, I kind of figured this was where it was going to go, um, that that's what you were going to ask me um, when you asked for this meeting. Um, so I think part of it was that. And then the other part of it was I said, as long as you keep your life clean, I'm not saying that you can't be a part of her life. I said, in many ways, being an aunt is a phenomenal thing. Yep. And you will now be an aunt to her, and we're not going to take that away unless you do something that's unsafe for my child. Now, what ended up happening is about a year later, she did get in trouble with the law again and was doing some things that my daughter wasn't comfortable with, and my daughter made the choice to stop the contact. So at this point, she's had no contact with her for many years unless we're at a family because we are a family. We sometimes run into each other like at a funeral or a wedding or things like that because obviously we all have a right to be there. Yep. Um, and it's very respectful, um, and it has to be because that's what I want my daughter to see. Um, I pray all the time, and I, I have said this to my daughter, that at some point her and her birth mom can have a friendship. They'll never go back to being a mom and daughter, but they can have a friendship that's built upon trust. But it's, it's going to take years of healing. I understand that because I had to go through it with my own mom. It takes years to heal that kind of damage. And, um, and as my daughter grows and becomes more of an adult um, and trust her instincts better, um, I think one day it will happen. I'm already hearing from other family members that my half-sister is making some steps that are different. Um, and, and that's wonderful because my daughter needs to know that we all do what we do because we love her, um, which is sometimes hard, I'll be honest, um, to separate that because in some ways you're, you obviously do have a fear of what if she chooses to, you know, connect with the birth mom and then you lose her, but you have to understand that you're not going to lose her. Right. You know, there's no, there's no way I'm going to lose her. Um, we're too well connected, we're too well bonded, um, and for me to completely separate her from the birth mom, that's that's a bad experience on me. That makes me look like I don't trust the situation, and that puts up a wall between my daughter and I. And so we have conversations about this. We talk about where her birth mom is, you know, based on what I'm hearing from extended family and the things that she's doing. Um because it should always be open conversation. Yeah, and and I, you, I hope that you're in the end. You know, hopefully she's learned that you have to pray. You have to pray for folks who are struggling yes. with drug addiction, yes. and that they can change their lives and turn them around. And if that that love and hope can be replaced with hate and, and bitterness, this changes the child's life too. Right, and I think for my daughter, even though she has a cognitive disability, she is functioning at a high enough level that she understood that she had to break away from that because her she has a sister, um, a half-sister, who went back to the birth mom and got involved with drugs, became promiscuous, 
had two children at a very young age. And I, I think she was cognitively aware enough to recognize that if you get into that environment, it's really easy to get sucked in permanently. And so she, she made the choice with, you know, with her therapist, not with me, but with her therapist and talking about it, to completely back away so she felt like she was on more solid ground. And I think as she, be, like I said, matures and becomes more of an adult, she'll, she'll feel that she's on that solid ground. And then at that point, hopefully the birth mom is also moving on with her life and continuing to heal on her side. And then I can see a friendship forming, you know, but like I said, it took, it took years for my mom and I to get past our history and it's going to take that for Marina and we have to give her that. You have to give her the time and the space. And Marina was born by the way, just so we can clear this up. She was born with fetal alcohol effects, which led to cognitive disabilities she could read something one day and not know it the next. She was never taught how to talk, and she was abused, which led her to act out angrily. She had night terrors. She'd been thrown up against the wall. Uh, this was, you know, for anybody listening, this isn't one of those on-the-border cases. Is someone taking a child out of a situation uh, un- in an unwarranted way. That's not the case here at all, D. Right, right. Oh, I would have... that. I would have never taken the steps that I had taken if I thought that help could have just come into the family and help them out. This was a situation where I felt like the help could only happen if we could remove the children so that they were safe during that process. You bet. You were an emergency responder to start. The intention was never to go long on this. It's just what ended up happening. You'd given the uh, parents the room and the space to be parents. And they just weren't about to become any soon, or one soon. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. National Adoption Month. We're celebrating it all month. And Dee Marks and the beautiful things she's been doing for children. We're going to talk about a few more stories. And sit tight. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Dee Marks. And I know the audience is wondering, because I'm wondering too, how's Marina doing now? How old is she? What's she up to? Marina is doing fantastic. Um, It's been an incredible journey with her. We're very fortunate. We live in a school district that um, has high expectations for kids with disabilities. And then, of course, when you've got a mom mixed in that has high expectations, um, there would be no other outcome. So she... Uh, graduated from high school. She was able to ultimately take her regular classes with peers in, in elementary school. She was pulled out a lot for extra support, and she still has cognitive delays. It's not that those have ever disappeared or will ever disappear, but we found a way of reaching her and teaching her in such a way that she was able to learn. So she did 
uh, go through high school and graduated. Um, and then she participated like in a program called Project Search, which taught her employment skills because one of the things that I did a lot of research on is kids with disabilities, when they exit high school, oftentimes they really have a hard time finding a job because people are um, a little hesitant to hire somebody with a disability. So we felt that instead of her going on to college um, for an associate's degree, that we needed to focus on the employment piece first. And so that's what we did. Um, and now she's 24. She's working. We worked with a specialist who taught her how to drive to and from work, so she drives her own car. Um, so everything that a typical child would have as an opportunity, my daughter now has. Was it delayed? Yes. Most kids get their license at 16. My daughter got hers at 20. Um, most kids start working when they're 16, 17. My daughter started when she was 20. Um, but she has all of those same outcomes, and that, that I, I can't even express how proud I am because she had to work 10 times harder than anyone else that was supporting her, and she had that drive, and now she's doing it. So we still have a 529 for her, and the goal is for within the next year or two for her to go back and get an associate's vet tech degree. So, um, so we're still moving forward. Well, good for and you for pushing on the work front because – Far too many special needs kids don't ever get that chance to enter the workforce. It's a very terribly high number. And it it takes special effort, love, and push uh, to not lower the bar because being being connected to a workforce and working gives people pride and something to live for. And uh, congrats on the efforts to to push that along, T. You you also tried to get your daughter, I mean, your daughter, a sister in the end. You wanted to find her. (laughs) A baby sister. Talk about that effort and what it led to. Well, when Marina was a senior in high school, one of the things that we had talked about was, in a lot of ways, she had lost a piece of her family because she had, at that point, she wasn't talking to her birth sister or her birth mom, and and she was, in every sense of the word, kind of like an only child. And we, she and I had had multiple conversations, like, wouldn't it be cool to have a sister that you could share your room with and things like that? So... Um, but I also felt very strongly that with Marina's needs and me being a single person, just one, I needed to make sure that Marina's needs were being met. And I didn't know that whether I could take another one on until her journey was semi-over. And so we waited until her senior year and then said, hey, all right, let's do this. It was a mutual decision. And so I decided to go through the adoption classes again and move forward with that process. Um, we had a few surprises along the way. First and foremost, when you go through the adoption classes, usually you have about a year to a year and a half wait before you're even contacted. Um, I was contacted within two weeks of finishing the class <laughs> because I said I would take a child with a disability. And um, and more importantly, that first contact was actually the son, not daughter, that I ultimately ended up adopting. So, um, again, God intervened with his own little plan and uh, gave us the family that we were actually meant to be, which is beautiful. Well, his plan was to send you a boy with red hair. (laughs) Yes. If if that had been a blonde-haired boy, you're right. I probably would have said, nah, I'm not even going to look at the file, but I don't know. I love red hair. Um, For years, I've colored my hair auburn because it's brown and I don't like it. Um, so red hair is just something that is, it's just a beautiful feature that I think of. And um, and so when they called me about this little boy, 
Um, I said, did you read my file? I'm looking for a little girl, you know, preferably between the ages of 12 and 15 with a cognitive delay, you know, basically kind of saying, come on, this is, you haven't even hit any markers that I've looked for, right. you know? Yep. And, um, and they were like, yeah, but, you know, we don't get too many parents who are willing to step up and say, hey, you know, I'd like to adopt a child with a disability, but more importantly, who has already got that experience. And I also work in the field of disability, so I had a wide range of experience related to it. And I said, okay, tell me about this little boy. You know, still in my head, it's a sales tactic in my mind, you know, okay, they're going to try to sell me this kid, but you can say no and hang up at the end of the phone call. (laughs) And, um, And so they went on, they were like, okay, he's a little boy, he's got autism, you know, he's eight years old. And he's got red hair. Okay, I'll make it work. That was my comment. I'll yep, make it yep, work. I'll make it work. Um, By the way, 70%, D, 70% of special needs kids in foster care are never adopted. Absolutely. Oh, it's just, yeah. it just breaks your heart, you know. Well, tell me this. So you, so you bring this redheaded boy into the home. What's, forget you for a second, what's her reaction? What's your daughter's reaction to this? Oh, she was super excited. Um, CJ... It was infantile in many, many ways. Um, he was nonverbal. He wasn't potty trained, even though he was eight years old and things like that. So she was excited because she was getting a sibling. She was excited because it was a sibling that she could take care of, you know, almost like that maternal instinct um, and everything. But that ended up not being, unfortunately, the reality. My, my son was very difficult to take care of and um, had RAD, reactive attachment disorder, which meant he didn't bond right away with people, if ever. You know, we're very fortunate he did bond with us. But um, so this lovey-dovey little brother that she was thinking she was getting, that was not the reality. And so we we did have to sit down and talk about that we have to meet him where he is. Um, So if he's not comfortable with hugging, then you can go up and pat him on the back and say, I love you, brother. You know what I mean? Um, because that's what I had to do back when she moved in with me. I had to meet her where she was. Um, and so some of that excitement wore off pretty quickly. Um, it never was that, oh, I wish we had gotten a sister, but it was, I don't have anything in common to do with him, right. you know? Um, because he was so delayed. Um, my understanding through Children's Services is that he had never owned a toy before he moved into my house. The one caseworker came in, and I had a bookcase, a small bookcase of, like, real chunky little, little kid toys. And she was like, you bought him toys. And I said, um, yeah, was I not supposed to? I just thought that was such an odd statement. And she said, oh, he's never had toys because they've said that he's too rough with them. And I said, that's why you buy the chunky stuff and you teach him how to play with it. I mean, to me, some of the things that um, had happened, unfortunately, in his life um, were because people were not educated on how to move it forward or approach it. Whereas I said, no, we just buy the big Tonka stuff <laughs> that's indestructible. And I teach him how to roll a truck across the floor and I buy the Brio train sets and show him how to make a train set and how to roll that train across the bridge. Um, so because all of that had to be taught and it wasn't instinctive for him, like it tends to be for a lot of children, right. that became really hard for Marina to connect with because well, 
She wanted to just play, not teach. Of course. But the good news is, you know, sometimes from these things bring great, great opportunity for kids. I mean, empathetic power gets developed. Leadership gets developed. Special understanding gets developed. When we come back, we're going to hear more about CJ and Marina and the story of Dee Marks and her beautiful family. This is National Adoption Month. We celebrate it all month long on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return with Dee Marks. We're celebrating National Adoption Month, and now we're talking about that second child she adopted, CJ, whom she got through one of the Dave Thomas Foundation's Wendy's Wonderful Kids Recruiters. And kudos to the incredible work the Dave Thomas Foundation does, and it just shows you the power of philanthropic work. The power of American business, the heart and soul of, for my money, capitalism, because it was with this great success that Dave Thomas had that he wanted to give back. And oh my goodness, there is no better way to give back than listening to a story like this. Dee, what we were struck by during the break, almost like someone had kicked our entire staff. I'm looking at Faith and Stan and Alex and Jesse, and it's when you said this child had never had a toy, it was like a kick in the gut. Just take us back to that again and what was going on and what did the, what did the, the folks with the experts explain that? Uh, how did they explain that? What did they attribute it to? Well, there weren't necessarily experts, but when I questioned the caseworker about it and she had indicated that he was too rough on the toys, you have to remember that from the age of two on, this child lived in a foster care situation where the toys were not just his. The toys belonged to other kids that were in the foster home, whether they were biologically related to the parents or whether they were other foster children. And so um, she felt um, that since he was so damaging to the toys that the family felt they couldn't replace them for everybody else all the time. And so it was better just for him not to have access to them. And, um, and for me, when, when that, that was almost like a puzzle piece went into place um, as to part of how much damage, for lack of a better word, that my child had experienced because if, if because of his behaviors, we're not giving him toys, we're also not taking him out into the community the way other kids by the time they're eight, those are experiences that every kid learn from and develop and grow. And my son at eight, had not had those experiences. And that kind of, for the most part, shut down a lot of the growth that he potentially could have had because his behaviors were so much in the way of people feeling comfortable with exposing him to that outside world. Well, you gave a perfect example. When that toy truck was put in front of him and you showed him what to do, 
this disabused the caseworkers of the fact that he had some kind of spatial problem or some kind of cognitive problem that he couldn't actually interact with a toy truck. Talk about that. Correct. Um, when, when I first got him and I gave him a truck, he flipped it upside down and he would just spin the wheels across, you know, with his fingertips. And at first, you know, the occupational therapist and, and even myself thought, that's a sensory thing. A lot of kids with autism have sensory things. I like to watch spinning things and things like that. But then when I actually bought a little floor rug that was shaped like a road map and I put the truck down on there and I'm like, okay, we've got to make the truck go to the store. Vroom, vroom, vroom. He immediately was able to replicate it. And then he never picked up the truck and spun the wheels again. He always played with it on the floor mat or on the floor or on the back deck or wherever we happened to be at. And so that was a very strong indication to me that this was not a sensory need um, because otherwise he still would have engaged in that. Um, he no longer engaged in it. He played appropriately with it. Now he was still rougher, you know. Um, it would crash into walls really hard <laughs> and stuff. But then you teach him, no, you know, we've got to be gentle so that our toy can, you know, stay together because if it breaks, we can't use it. So all those things, we just had to step back. And we had to teach them the things that most people are taught, most kids are taught, between the ages of one and a half and two years old. Yep. Tell us a story um, about the first time, Dee, that you and CJ experienced pouring rain together. What happened and how did you address it? Um, no one had warned me that apparently my son had a very significant sensory issue to rain. Um, and so I had no awareness of it, and we had gone in to go grocery shopping together. And um, we had just gotten to the point where CJ was no longer having to ride in the grocery cart but could hold on to the side of the grocery cart. And so he was holding on to the side. We come out to the parking lot, and it's pouring rain. And bless his little heart, he immediately went down to the ground in the parking lot and covered his head to protect himself. It was like a painful experience for him and he was terrified. And so, um, I, I, I can't control the rain. It's as simple as that. I can control whether he takes a bath or a shower and things like that, but I cannot control when it's going to rain. So I immediately right then said, we got to deal with this right now, right here. Um, and so we both held onto the cart and I said, we're just going to walk the rain doesn't hurt you. It's like getting a bath. It's just washing your body and making it clean. And they just kept saying that over and over in a soothing voice as we walked. And we walked for five minutes. And then we got in the car and I, I said, is your body safe? And he, he said his body is safe because he talks third person. And, um, and I said, okay. I said, the water didn't hurt you. You can dry off. We'll dry off when we get home, when we get a towel. And, so then every time we would be in rain, he didn't hit the ground, but he still would kind of crunch his shoulders up a little bit, you know. And um, and then he started to learn to self-talk, which was amazing. He would say to himself, that water doesn't hurt you. You're okay. It's like getting a bath. And so he used the same language that I used to calm himself. And now rain is still not his preference, um, but we don't have any issues if we actually have to walk in the rain. Um, and so I'm excited because these are the things that I just look at. And if someone had just taken a moment of time, one, it took me five minutes to process that with him in that parking lot that day. If someone had done that when he was three, 
that would have been one more thing that he would have been ahead on, and he would have been ready for the real world in a better sense of the word. You bet. And, um, and that's, that's the unfortunate thing, unfortunately, with foster care systems, is oftentimes they don't have the training to know what to do in those situations. Um, not that they don't want to help the child, but this child needed really unique specialized care, and foster care was not prepared to handle that. And so things just didn't happen that should have happened to help my child grow. Um, And that's why we've seen such amazing growth in the last five years that I've had him. That's beautiful. It's it's, it's just beautiful, Dee, everything we're hearing. I know the audience is just is just being is moved. There are folks listening who are thinking about maybe adopting, uh, and hopefully uh, after your story, they might lean more towards that, that thought. You also run your own business, Dee. How do you do it as a single mom? And were there ever any moments where you questioned your decision to adopt, and do you still sometimes have doubts? Okay, I'll start with the beginning. I run my own business, and I started my own business so I could control my hours better to be more available for my kids. If you have a child with special needs, they have different and more frequent doctor's appointments. Um, They have sometimes issues at school that you immediately have to attend to um, and things like that. And so I very quickly realized that that was going to be the best fit for our family, for me to be able to provide for the family and yet still be available um, when I needed to be available. Um, so that's why I started running my own business. As far as doing it alone, I get asked that a lot. And I look back and I go, I don't think I'd do it any other way. <laughs> um, and part of it is because I got to make the decisions and we could just immediately move forward because I didn't have to have a discussion with somebody. And I think part of my kids advancing, both of them, was because we did have that sense of immediacy that we could move forward with. And... Um, and also, I want my kids to see someone strong um, that supports them and that anyone can be a parent. If neither of my kids ever get married, I still want them to still know that they can choose to be a parent um, and, a, and a really good one. So I don't have any regrets with that. Regrets with taking the children um, right after I got both of them because their disabilities were so extreme. There were times, yes, I went to bed and I cried. I would, I would go in and I'd say, I love you. Mommy loves you. Good night. Everything's, you know, in my voice, everything's fine. And I would shut their door and I'd go to my room and I'd cry because I would have self-doubt. What if I'm not the right person to help them through this? Um, what if this is how it is forever? What if we never get better than the point we're at? Um, with CJ, because he had rad, what if he never bonds with me? What if he's never able to accept a hug from his own mom? So, of course, I had doubts. Um, that being said, those doubts are kind of what motivated me the next day to get up and push a little harder because I wanted it to work. Um, I saw potential in both of my kids to be something that was further than what they were at that moment. And I recognize as a mom, that's my job, to step behind them and support them while they're moving through it and to catch them when they're falling um, 
And so part of it is you have to just kind of say those doubts are normal. I don't think there's any mom out there in the world, whether they have special needs kids, adopted kids, or their own birth children, that has not gone to bed and doubted something about raising their child. You bet. You bet. And, Dee, thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing your story. It's National Adoption Month, folks. There's no better way to show love than to adopt. And Dee Marks adopted two special needs children and one through the help of the folks at the Dave Thomas Foundation, Wendy's Wonderful Kids Recruiters, what work you do. Thank you so much again, Dee. What a story about love, about God's love. This is Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and here we talk about those who have served our country year-round, not just on a holiday or two, those who decided to make our freedom here their number one priority. While visiting Washington, D.C. for Memorial Day, our own Alex Cortez and Martin Peterson were able to talk to a former CIA officer, Felix Rodriguez. Felix is known for his involvement in the Bay of Pigs invasion and helping to eliminate Che Guevara. More on him later. Felix came to America in 1954 from his home country of Cuba. Here is Felix on his journey to America. I came here back in 1954 for high school in Pennsburg, Pennsylvania. How was it to get over here for school? Was it easier? To, how, how hard was it to well, get out remember, of Cuba? Well, remember, when I came back, it was way before Castro okay, took over. Okay, got it. So it wasn't hard uh, then. It was in 1954. I knew my family. I actually, we went to the American embassy to look for a school. I wanted to see a snow. So you know, they, you wanted to see snow, you said. Yeah, I never seen snow before. So I wanted a school that that was in, in the cold weather, so I could see snow. Is this a fascination of a lot of Cubans? I, I don't know if it is a fascination, or not, but to me, you know, it was interesting to be in an area that the snow. We've never seen a snow in Cuba before. So I went there in 1954. I finally graduated in 1960. Then I actually applied to University of Miami for engineering, and I was accepted. But then when I got to Miami, I learned there was something going up somewhere against Castro. So. I joined the CIA, what later became the Bay of Peak Invasion, so I I never got to go to to university. What exactly did Felix volunteer for instead of going to university? The Bay of Pigs Invasion was an effort by Cuban exiles and the CIA to overthrow Fidel Castro's communist government in Cuba. Presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy authorized the plan to train and equip five battalions of infantry and one battalion of paratroopers, Cubans who knew what Fidel Castro would do to their home, their families, and wanted a different future. These 1,400 men landed at the Bay of Pigs on April 17, 1961, and fought with tremendous valor. But as global attention turned to the invasion, President Kennedy was determined to keep U.S. involvement a secret. So in order to prevent the Soviet Union from joining the conflict, he refused to provide air support to the Cuban exiles. Outmanned, outgunned, and unsupported, the Cuban exiles were defeated, and over a 1,000 of them were captured. Castro executed hundreds of people in the following weeks. Felix survived this failed invasion and continued to work in the U.S. government. One of his missions was to find Che Guevara. You've seen his face on T-shirts at a college campus near you, and like Castro, Che is poorly understood by many folks. He was really cold-blooded assassin. There's no question about it. He assassinated a lot of my countrymen. I come from Cuba originally. I was also in the Bay of Pigs. And... uh, he, 
I had one story, for example, uh, about 40 years ago in Miami of a lady who learned I participated in his capture and she came to me and asked me, uh, you know, I participated, so she was telling me her story in 1961. Uh, her son, who was 15 years old, was in La Cabana Fort, so he was uh, supposed to be executed. Uh, and then the, she went to plead for his life. And he said that she did receive her. And he had his leg on top of the bureau and said, Lady, what can I do for you? And she said, Commandante, you know, my son is very young. He's 15 years old. I can guarantee he will never do it again. So he asked her what was the name of her son and was, when was he going to be executed. It was a Monday. He was going to be executed on a Friday. So he called an assistant and she thought that she had saved his life. And his answer was, get the lady so now and execute him now so she doesn't have to wait until Friday. And they killed her son, 15-year-old, right on the spot that same day, on a Monday. And I also met one guy who trained Fidel and all the people in Mexico. They call it Coreano, the Korean, because he was in the Korean War and had experience. And he's the one who militarily trained uh, Fidel and Che and Raul and all of those in Mexico. And he used to tell me that Che used to ask him constantly, what does it feel like when you shoot somebody and you see the blood coming out of him? You know, he had a fascination about assassinating people, which he proved that he did it later on many, many times. Yeah, folks, that's the guy college kids celebrate on T-shirts. But back to Felix. Normal men might have found a beach after the last two missions, but not Felix. No, into the jungles he went. Well, while I was in Vietnam, I developed a helicopter concept that I felt it was going to be effective later on when I saw the war in, in, uh, in El Salvador. So I managed to uh, arrange for me to fly as a volunteer for the Salvadorian Air Force. So I went there in March of 1985 and flew with the Salvadorian Air Force until 1988. How many people volunteer for a foreign government's military? I don't know. While I was there, it was the only one. <laughs> and by the way, it was without pay. It was a problem. I didn't charge them anything for it. You didn't charge them anything? I felt I was doing something you know, to the same people who destroyed my country. Oh, so you know, it was a satisfaction for me that my the concept was... Uh, you know, it was really helping them, and it did. So, uh, like, for example, in 1988 alone, I flew, like, 298 missions with the Salvadorian Air Force. And so on Memorial Day, who was it that he was thinking about and honoring? Oh, I remember uh, many of my friends, a lot of them died in Cuba uh, during the Bay of Pigs and after the Bay of Pigs. Uh, some member of my infiltration team, see, I landed in Cuba two months ahead of the invasion to work with the resistance. And of my team, there were about 36, only about 10 of us made it out. The rest were either captured and some of them were executed. I also have some uh, close friends uh, from the Bay of Pigs who served in Vietnam, and they will kill in Vietnam, all three of them. One of them received the, uh, the Silver Star for charging against a uh, machine gun that was hitting you know, his, uh, his company. So, you know, I, I have a lot of friends. I served in Vietnam for two and a half years. And Was there anyone you were particularly close to that kind of hurt the hardest? Well, one was Felix Sosa Camejo, who was with me, and uh, we, we were very close friends from the Bay of Pigs, and he's the one who was killed in Vietnam. So, you know, we, we honor the memory of all of those who gave their life uh, for our country here. You know, it, it's, it's really, I'm so happy to see today the way our servicemen are treated. Because I remember at the time when I came back from Vietnam because of the resentment against the war, uh, how poorly the American people felt about our troops and how they treated them at the time. And that is so true. It was disgraceful the way our fighting men returned from Vietnam 
And you can agree or disagree with the war, but respect the soldiers. They're following orders. And I've got to say, even the harshest critics of the Iraq and Afghanistan war treated our soldiers with respect. It was very different this time around. And that's what makes this country so great. The story of Felix Rodriguez, by the way, awarded a Silver Star for Valor, an Intelligence Star, that's given by the CIA, that too for Valor. Felix Rodriguez's story here on Our American Story, celebrating Memorial Day. This is Our American Stories, and we look for stories all over the place. And when we read something great, we call up the author and ask if they'll share the story in their own voice. We first read this piece by Howard Husick in the Wall Street Journal. It's titled, Decades in an Asylum Wasn't the Worst Fate. Howard is the research vice president of the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor to its periodical, City Journal, from which this piece was adapted. Here's Howard sharing the story of a family member. To say that I didn't know my great-uncle, Wolf Levine, would understate things. I didn't even know of such an uncle, brother of my mother's father, a grandfather with whom I was close. In retrospect, it's clear that he was simply unmentionable. We'd write it off today as the stigma of mental illness. Wolf's story is tragic dating from an era of large public asylums that America has sought to forget. His journey to the Lima State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Lima, Ohio, began in 1910 with a criminal conviction, one to five years in a reformatory for pickpocketing. Six years before, Wolf had immigrated to America at age 14. Theft was not a shocking charge for a young man in Cleveland living on a block of ramshackle frame houses with his widowed mother and her three other children. Once convicted, Wolf would never again be a free man. After less than two years in that reformatory, itself later made famous as the setting for the film The Shawshank Redemption, he exhibited persecutory delusions and auditory hallucinations. That's how he wound up in Lima, where the conditions were so bad that by 1974, when he remained there, a federal judge chastised Ohio for failing to ensure dignity, privacy, and humane care. He died in custody in 1982 at age 92 and was buried near Toledo, the costs covered by a fund for indigence supported by a local Jewish federation. Wolf Levine had spent 72 years in institutions. In the language of latter-day reformers, he'd been warehoused for his entire adult life. His aspiration to be a playwright, the occupation he actually listed when admitted to the reformatory, would prove a dark irony for somebody formally diagnosed with dementia precox, schizophrenia, as it later came to be called. Yet the story is not so straightforwardly bleak as it seems. 
and it casts light on how far America has come and not come in treating the mentally ill. Are we treating the severely mentally ill better today than we did a century ago? Wolf did not do well at that reformatory. In a year's time, more than 300 days were added to his sentence for misbehavior. This almost certainly reflected an onset and worsening of his mental condition. The family may have been involved in the decision to transfer him to the hospital. My great aunt, now nearly 100, my grandmother's sister, recalls my grandparents discussing what to do with Wolf. Dave and Ethel were just starting their own family, she says. They just couldn't take care of him. Nor was his extended family well off. My grandmother's immigrant father was still making deliveries on Cleveland's east side with a horse-drawn wagon well into the 1920s. Thus did Wolf arrive at Lima in 1915. Little information exists on daily life there, but census records portray an institutionalized American melting pot. My great-uncle was listed as a Russian Jew. His neighbors, all of whose occupations were listed as patient, included natives of Alabama, Indiana, Germany, Bohemia, Hungary, England, and Italy. The hospital itself was enormous, with 17 wings for 1,400 patients. It was considered the largest poured concrete structure in the world until the building of the Pentagon. The nationwide hospital system of that era was the product of a 19th century reform movement led by Dorothea Dix and Horace Mann. They'd been outraged by the imprisonment of so many of the mentally ill. By 1940, America was institutionalizing 450,000 people in mental health institutions. Though the care given was far from perfect, it did aspire to be therapeutic. A little-known book provides a remarkable window into the era. In 1931, a 52-year-old journalist named Merle Woodson checked himself into Eastern Oklahoma Hospital in an attempt to kick his alcohol problem. As he dried out, he also wrote, Behind the Door of Delusion, which did not describe a quiet or oppressive warehouse. About me, the daytime activities of the hospital hummed, all the work was done by the patients. There was little detailed supervision by the attendants, although they were there, here and everywhere, all the time. A floor gang polished and shined, and a crew for making up beds did its work with a neatness which would shame many of the maids in good hotels. Patients worked in the art department, bakery, the store, or other departments of the institution. There was darkness, too. I was to learn, Woodson wrote, that a patient who apparently is in sound mind most of the time can suddenly suffer a paroxysm of wild hallucinations and become thoroughly and irresponsibly insane or even dangerously violent, then, after a period, return to an apparently normal state. Straitjackets were used, as were opiates or barbiturate sedatives. My great-uncle may have been restrained or sedated. Such were the limited tools then available. They did not change Wolf for the better. For decades, he was likely a shell of a human being. Yet he also may have found satisfaction in helping with the chores, perhaps while mentally composing plays that would never be produced. He may have been comforted by visits from a Toledo rabbi. He was, without doubt, at least kept safe and warm through the cold Ohio winters. 
Instead of investing in such facilities when the level of care deteriorated, the movement toward deinstitutionalization shut them down. Today, people like my great uncle end up in prisons and jails. The Bureau of Justice Statistics once estimated that 365,000 adults with serious mental illness are behind bars. They are often kept isolated because of the risk of disruption or suicide. Imagine a latter-day Wolf Levine. After his arrest, he would be given medication for his delusions. If he didn't respond, he might be isolated throughout his jail term. Then he would be released to his poor immigrant neighborhood, either to await another arrest or to complicate life for his family. No one would force him to continue taking medication. If he threatened violence but committed no crime, he could not be involuntarily committed yet he might present a danger. The psychiatrist E. Fuller Torrey estimated in 2013 that 1% of the 12.3 million Americans suffering from serious mental illnesses pose a threat to themselves or others. That's 123,000 people, including those who push subway riders onto the tracks or those who open fire at college campuses. Providing for the severely mentally ill does not mean recreating a sprawling hospital system. At their height, asylums housed many others, the senile elderly, those suffering from what were incurable diseases such as syphilis. The population that would have to be addressed today, those 123,000, is not unmanageable. A doctor at the Kankakee State Hospital in Illinois wrote in 1893, that the public had an obligation to provide every mentally ill person with the benefit of treatment and supervision by a competent physician. Leaving Wolf Levine's successors on the street or in isolation behind bars suggests we have, in practice at least, become not more but less compassionate. And thank you for that story, Howard. Uncle Wolf Levine's story, Howard Husuk's story, here on Our American Stories.
And this is Our American Stories. And periodically, we love to just hear from really smart people. They're not famous. You've never heard of them before. But they can talk. And they can talk about anything. We all had that teacher that the guy could have taught or gal could have taught anything. And you would have taken it and it would have been interesting. And a while back, we had on Stephen Goldberg to talk about something or another. We don't remember what. But he went on this tear. And it, la- and it went on and on. And usually you're the host. You want to interrupt. You want to say something. But he just kept going. Yeah, you asked him one question, and 12 minutes later, the segment was over, and he hadn't even taken a breath yet. Not a he breath. He just talked. But it wasn't boring. No. Not only wasn't it boring, we were wondering, how does he keep making it more interesting, <laughs> yeah. and why do we want to interrupt? And darn, I can't believe we have to go to a commercial. Yeah. And so we're calling this segment Musings. And right now it's with Stephen Goldberg, but it could be with anybody. And by the way, Stephen Goldberg, now retired, was chairman of the Department of Sociology at City College, City University of New York, for 20 years. His books include Fads and Fallacies in the Social Sciences, When Wishes Replace Thought, and The Inevitability of Patriarchy, which I think is what we originally had him on for, some musings about that. And his work has appeared everywhere. Psychiatry, Yale Review, National Review, Saturday Review, Every Review. Let's take a listen to Stephen Goldberg's musings. So it's 1956 and I'm 14 years old. I'm on this bicycle trip from Calgary, Canada to Yellowstone Park, Wyoming. There are 12 guys and a leader, an ex-Marine named Grockdorf. Now I'm pretty good at bike riding, which is a good thing, because it's a lot of miles from Calgary to Yellowstone. But what I'm not good at, and what I never expected to do, was having to ride a horse. (laughs) We would stop at a ranch, a real ranch, not what you call a a dude ranch, and uh, we would be required to ride a horse. A horse! (laughs) I know what you're thinking. What's a Jewish kid from New York doing riding a horse? Who ever heard of such a thing? The time comes when they're giving out the horses. In front of me is a guy, Jimmy, who is more than a bit of a wise guy. And he says to the cowboy who's giving the horses out, he'd like a frisky steed. Now, cowboys don't tend to show a lot of emotion on their faces, but they can't keep their feelings out of their eyes. And I could see the eyes of this cowboy. And he was thinking, oh, he wants a frisky steed, does he? Bring out Dr. Death. (laughs) So now it's my turn to be given a horse. Uh, Naturally, I request an old lady horse, preferably one with advanced arthritis. I couldn't have been more pleased. They bring me this spinster horse named Lucky. The cowboy realized I needed all the help I could get. Lucky must have been 80 years old, 80 years in people years, not horse years. We start riding, and it soon becomes clear that my horse was a sort of reverse camel. Where a camel's back goes up in the air, my horse's tummy went down and rubbed against the ground. 
my legs were like, you know, the things on children's bikes. I think they're called training wheels. Every step Lucky took, my heels dug into the ground. So the many-hour ride went okay. Thank goodness we didn't gallop. And we settled down at night and got into our sleeping bags for a well-deserved night's rest. But I noticed something. Grockdorf, the leader, just let the horses hang out. Now, I had seen enough Western movies to know that when a cowboy goes into a bar for a mug of sarsaparilla, um, he uh, ties his horse to a hitching post. That was, I correctly assume, to keep the horse from running away. I guess Grockdorf never heard of this um, and never saw the movies. So come morning, there was a, not a horse to be seen. Three hours later, two very angry-looking cowboys rode uh, within view, leading a pack of 13 horses. It was incidentally at this time that I first thought of a question that I have not found an answer for in the 60 years that have passed since. Perhaps that's because it might uh, take a rancher to answer the question. And as your listeners probably know, we don't have many ranches in New York City. I mean, the buildings are about 20 feet apart. What kind of ranch could you have? Maybe one big enough for a single cow. Anyway, perhaps one of your listeners could answer the question, and, and here it is. This is the question. Say there are two cowboys out on a ranch, like the ones I've heard of they have in Texas. In the far, far distance, there is a horse. It's almost out of sight for the cowboys, uh, so far away that they can tell it's a horse, but not whether it's a gentleman horse or a lady horse. One of the cowboys turns to the other and says, hey, look over there, there's a horse. No problem, because the cowboy doesn't have to know the sex of the horse. The word horse covers both sexes. It's just a horse. Now, here's where things get tricky. Let's say a cow or a bull is in the distance instead of a horse. The cowboys can tell it's a cow, not a horse. The lower center of gravity is observable, um, even at the great distance. But horns and udders are much too small to be seen at that distance. One cowboy turns to the other and says, Hey, look over there. There's a what? What is the cow-bull sexless equivalent of a horse? I wrote to the Department of Agriculture asking my question. The department wrote back uh, in a three-page, tightly typed letter giving me an entire taxonomy of the cow-bull. I didn't know whether to applaud the department for its uh, fine work or write a letter of criticism for their wasting our tax money, expending time and energy on a dumb question like mine. Anyway, the Department of Agriculture gave me an answer. You call the uh, sex-free word for uh, cow-bull, uh, equivalent to horse-for-horse, horse, a bostaurus. Bostaurus. <laughs> well, maybe. It's really hard to believe that a cowboy would turn to his partner and say, hey, look over there, there's a Bostaurus. <laughs> See, when I was a kid, I saw movies with great cowboys. Your listeners mostly have probably never heard of because they're too young. 
But these were great. There was Bob Steele, Lash LaRue, Whip Wilson. I mean, these guys were tough. There were no singing cowboys, if you get my drift. Bob, Lash, and Whip wouldn't be called dead saying Bas Taurus. So what would they say? I found one Google source that said there's no sexless word for cow or bull. There's no equivalent to the word horse. But people have been ranching for 5,000 years, and it's, hard, it's difficult to believe that they haven't found a need for such a word. So what could the cowboys say? Well, perhaps they could say that cow means both male and female, as we have, at least traditionally, used man not just for males, but male and female. But I've never heard of this and doubt that the cowboys had either. So, what is the sexless word for the cow bull, the equivalent of the word horse? Sixty years later, and I still don't know. <laughs> thank you very much. Oh, and thank you, Stephen Goldberg, <laughs> Bustorus. Wow. Bustorus. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's Stephen Goldberg. That's our musing segment. And we just love hearing from really great storytellers. And it does not get better than that. Stephen Goldberg, retired chairman of the Department of Sociology at City College, City University of New York. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Leonard Skinner and Greg here. I said, who is this again? And, Len- and he said, I know every Leonard Skinner song, and I also know every Boston song. And I thought, wow, that's something to brag about. Um, but that, that is, I guess, in some strange way. Um, but we're playing that because, well, our friend Heidi Mitchell over at the Wall Street Journal, who does the Burning Question column, well, this week's Burning Question was, what makes some people sweat more than others? And I have a dear friend who has a bunch of boys, and they're all ball-playing age, like 10 to 18. And my goodness, you walk into that pantry where they put all their cleats, and it, the, the, we should bottle that and drop it on terrorists because it, it is it is. I'm rancid. going to be sick. <laughs> so, Heidi, we're, we're, we're so happy to have you again on this burning question. Uh, thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm just thinking about my 10-year-old socks now. Ooh, ooh, that smell. It's brutal, is it? It's brutal. <laughs> so let's talk about, let's talk about, hey, what, what led you to this one this week? What was the water cooler discussion? How did you get to this one? Um, you know, so I think someone was complaining about, um, I know what it was. We were, I was coming out of a concert with a friend, and her boyfriend was drenched, and it was winter, it was still cool. Well, it still is winter here in New York, and uh, it was. And he, I was like, "Why are you sweating?" <laughs> and he's like, "I just sweat all the time. I'm always sweaty. I don't know why." And so that that led to, hmm, I don't sweat that much. Yeah. Not even at the gym that much. Right. 
And that, that'll do it. And by the way, you know, I was always thinking about all these different Seinfeld episodes, the close talker, the, the bubble boy, but there was never one on the heavy sweater. I was There's really not a heavy sweater one. You're right. No. And I always remember Samurai. Do you remember Samurai where, where, Samurai Taylor, Samurai Butcher? Remember John Belushi every week? He would come out with a sword and he'd have a different job. And the solution was always to take out the sword and chop something in half. I, he we, was always sweating. Always sweat. He was always sweating. I had a waiter one night, and he was really sweating. And you could tell that this was not meant for him. And I thought, what, what if there was a sweaty guy that you followed around from job to job? And every single job he took, he was so sweaty, there was no way it was going to work out. So we're talking about your friend, who's obviously a, a real sweater. What, what, what did you learn about sweating? A, I, I would think first, Tidy, sweating is important, right? I mean, it serves a biological function. Right. I mean, so pretty much everything, when we start these columns, I always look at them from a kind of evolutionary perspective. And, you know, so your body has evolved so that if it's too hot, you sweat and that cooling, that, that evaporation process. So the water comes out of you and as it evaporates, it, it feels cooler. You just it lowers your core temperature. So, you know, your body has evolved to do it. Of course, when you, when you sweat, you're also sweating out some electrolytes and some stuff that your body, salts and stuff that your body needs. So that's why, you know, there's lots and lots of marketplace out there for, um, for drinks that claim to rehydrate you with those electrolytes and stuff. But usually typical food can help you. Typical food and beverage can help you get your rehydrated. But it's also, it's also interestingly, um, it hydrates your skin too because it kind of locks in the moisture. So there's all good things with sweating. And, and, and so what did you learn? Why, why is it that some people do sweat more than others? And by the way, why do we sometimes, like I know myself, I, I'm not a heavy sweater, but every once in a while in certain contexts, especially before giving a, a speech in a large public gathering, I will really start to get the sweats. And then I've got to sit down, like relax, and then it goes away. But that's right. the one, and I'll so- sweat. I can't stop it. So actually, it's, it's interesting because there's two different kinds of sweating. So there's the kind of sweating that's from, you know, elevating your heart rate from, from being active. And then there's something that's called emotional sweating, which is what you're talking about. And it's nervousness usually tips it off. And basically, your, your body is just going into, you're, you're scared, right? You're nervous to go on stage. And so you go into this fight or flight mode and um, sweating it out is, was just one of the responses that your brain does. It's not totally understood, <laughs> right. but it's, it's, I guess it, you know, part of what, you know, your, your, your heart rate gets boosted, adrenaline starts flowing. And so some people will sweat. I'm not one of those people, but I do get nervous, but I don't sweat. So yeah, it's like, and, and then people that really sweat, excessive sweaters, people with something called hyperhidrosis. And there are whole um, university programs devoted to this and, and, and centers devoted to this. That's about one to 3% of the population. And they, they just sweat. They just sweat from everything. They sweat sitting on their couch. And that's just, not, it's not normal. So if you're feeling that, you should talk to your doctor. No, that's not. And you did talk to, what I love, Heidi, is that you actually talk to doctors who do this stuff. And you talk to a doctor named Dr. Harmeek J. Sukusian. Sukasian. <laughs> and he's at the Cedars Sinai Hyperhidrosis Clinical uh, Center. And he's a team leader, which means there are people who, as you just said, sit on a couch, listen to classical music, and sweat. And my goodness, this has got to be a problem at a minimum for your love life. I know. And you know, the sad thing is that there isn't, they don't really know why people have this. It's like he, they think it's a miswiring of. You know something in your brain that um, these these gland clusters just get overactivated by just a little little bit of stimulation. It could be like a tiny rise in the temperature, 
And you just, it's once that, he says, once that faucet's open, you just can't shut it down. And they're just not, not totally sure. But he said he gave some, some examples of, like, you know, kids that couldn't get through a test because they were smudging their, their papers as they were writing it out. Um, they were sweating so much during these tests. Um, or people that just are embarrassed to, to go out or can't buy nice clothes because they sweat through them and stain them. Um, and it can be, it can be socially inhibiting. Oh, it, it can be a killer. I had one of my dearest friends, he had that anxiety sweat when it came to dating. And it just, it, oh. it didn't end well for him. And yeah. to this day, I mean, he is still a single guy and he just thinks oh. girls don't like him. And they do, but they just, he, they, he can't stop it. He's gone to doctors. There's, he's tried everything in his life and he, he can't do it. They and, do have Botox now that is one of the things that seems to work. Um, he's, you know, that's sort of a, and then they have a, a further thing where they go Botox, which paralyzes those, um, glands. Right. And then the next thing you can do is, um, he does this surgery and he says, it's like, it does a great job, but it's the last, last, last resort. Effort. Yeah. 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 And in fact, um, my, my buddy had pondered that, but he's just one of those guys who goes, I'm just not doing that. I'm just yeah. not doing that. I'm going, well, whatever. I mean, the alternative is you're going to be alone the rest of your life. Aww, no, that's rough. Guy. So let's, let's talk about what else might cause sweating. I mean, for, for, for those of us who can maybe impact it one way or the other on at least the periphery, medications, well, so, food choices, yeah. talk about those things. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's tons of them. I mean, the list is super, super long about what can increase your sweating, um, like from insulin or any kind of antidepressant, even, even aspirin. Of course, you know, the sort of experience, caffeine, alcohol, they can boost your heart rate, so that can boost your core temperature. Of course, spicy foods, for some people, it's just, this, it's just capsicum. It's just the stuff, the chemical that's in the spicy peppers that can trigger, it, it increases your core temperature. So anything that will increase your core temperature can, um, can get you to just, just, again, that faucet gets turned on and it just can't get turned off. But what's super interesting, I thought, um, that I learned from, from Dr. Sukasian is that um, less fit people, it's like a lot about your fitness level. So studies show that less fit people, they, they sweat more when they go to the gym um, because their bodies are really trying to cool down more. Right. But, but you see fit people sweating a lot too because their bodies are so efficient that their body is starting to cool down right away. It knows that it's got to get itself back to regular, to be healthy, to get its core temperature back down to a regular 98.6. And so they start sweating straight away. So, so fit people will start sweating sooner, but less fit people will sweat more, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And tell us this for our audience listening. What can we do to reduce our sweat? Are there things we can do? Um, of course. So there's lots that you can do. The first, the easiest thing you can do is to wear natural fabrics. Um, you know, if you look at your label, probably everything you own is, is a blend. So try and stick to cottons and, and wools, and they just let you breathe more, right? So you're not inhibiting um, your body, those glands that are going to sweat. And then, um, and then you can get uh, a higher aluminum uh, antiperspirant, and you can even put that on your hands. Some people use it on their hands or like on their necks or the bottoms of their feet for mm -hmm. your stinky, your friend's stinky um, teenagers. Yep. Um, and that can, that can, that aluminum content, it actually kind of damages the cells. 
Um, some people are afraid of it because of t- uh, p- potential ties to some forms of cancer, but um, it's a sketchy link in. So, uh, but uh, but anyway, if you if you're a big sweater, um, you know you might that is certainly something to consider. And then if that you can go one step further and get an antiperspirant from your dermatologist that's like really high in this aluminum base, and uh, and that will basically kind of kill off that will do the job most of those plans yeah it should do the job i mean sometimes you know there's 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 other there's underlying illnesses like um menopause (laughs) um tuberculosis like some sort forms of cancer um and and you know those i think people tend to know but sweating can be can be one indicator so if you're super sweaty um, especially at night, and if you recognize a pattern of like you you're you're sweating, you know, only at night for no apparent reason, then you should see a doctor. Well, Heidi, as always, and by the way, we didn't get into smelly sweat as opposed to not smelly sweat. I think that's another column, though, Heidi. Uh, we, <laughs> take, we were, a shower, <laughs> take, take a shower, dude. Take a shower, dude. Take another one. <laughs> I hear you, Heidi Mitchell, <laughs> The Wall Street Journal, the burning question column: What makes some people sweat more than others? Heidi, as always, thank. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we like to do, well, every kind of storytelling imaginable. And thanks so much for joining us. More after these messages. 